Hi there, you're listening to the Unabridged Christian Fiction Audiobook Podcast. I'm your host, Alana Terry, and this season of the Unabridged Podcast is the Terror in the Sky series. This is an unforgettable, fast-paced collection of six novellas that tell you the story of what happens when multiple strangers board a doomed flight. I hope that you enjoy this episode of the Unabridged Christian Fiction Audiobook Podcast. Chapter 7 Chelsea's heart couldn't handle the stress. Any instant it was going to give out entirely. Her head was light. Was she even breathing? Listen up, Bradley bellowed. His voice carried and echoed through every crevice and cranny of the cabin. Let me tell you how it's gonna go. Behind him, the man in the Hawaiian shirt was binding the air marshal and dragging his unconscious body to the back of the cabin. Chelsea thought she saw him make eye contact and give a silent nod to another passenger as well. How many men were in on this plot to take over their plane? You have to let us go, a woman pleaded. Please, you don't want to do this. No. Bradley's voice was level and eerily controlled. He continued to aim the air marshal's gun overhead. The truth is, I don't want to do this. But the Detroit mayor and his crony superintendent have failed our kids. All year we've been complaining about the health hazards of the Brown Elementary School playground. All year we've been calling, petitioning, and demanding that the superintendent move our children to a safer location. And you know what? Nobody's listened. Until now. Chelsea's brain was struggling to keep up with his rant. It didn't make sense. What did any of these passengers on board have to do with Brown Elementary School or the Detroit school system? Another pocket of turbulence shook the cabin. Several passengers screamed. Chelsea was so shocked she couldn't even be certain if she'd been one of them, but the raw soreness of her throat suggested she was. A man from the back of the cabin took advantage of the chaos and raced at Bradley, While the plane jerked yet again, the two men grappled, grunting loudly. Chelsea was about to be sick, maybe from the fear or the turbulence, maybe both. A single shot rang out. Everything happened so quickly, Chelsea didn't even realize it was the gun that had fired until she saw the man who attacked Bradley lying in the aisle, a pool of blood forming around him. Bradley used his foot to push the man to the side, stepped over his body, and addressed the passengers in an eerie monotone. Anyone else feel like questioning my authority? Chelsea didn't know what to say or what to do. It was one thing to be a bystander on a flight where a kidnapped girl was rescued from her abductor. Her brain still hadn't processed that event— and now she was supposed to take in the fact that she was on a hijacked plane, the terrorist had a gun, and one passenger had been shot. She wasn't sure if the air marshal had survived his attack or not, but he was now bound in the back of the cabin. Even if he wasn't tied up and unconscious, what could he do now to help them? The man in the aisle was most definitely dead, however. 
Chelsea could tell. When she was a little girl, Chelsea and her parents once stumbled across the scene of an accident. A drunk man had smashed his car straight into a telephone pole on a deserted stretch of road in the middle of the day. He was still alive when her family pulled up to see if they could offer any help. Don't get out of the car, Dad ordered, and keep your eyes shut no matter what. Of course, that kind of rule was next to impossible for an inquisitive seven-year-old to follow. Chelsea had stared, her eyes both wide and dry, as her dad pulled the man out of the car and her mom attempted CPR. The entire scene lasted only a few minutes, and her parents insisted the man didn't die until he was en route to the hospital. But Chelsea knew what she saw, knew that the life had already left him. And she immediately understood why her parents had ordered her not to look. Chelsea mentioned the story to Clark as an aside one day. He wanted to explore the possibility that the helplessness and hopelessness Chelsea experienced as a little girl, forced to stay in her parents' car while a man literally died in front of her eyes, sparked the passion she now had to speak up for the downtrodden, to use her words to give voice to the voiceless. She had never thought about the incident in those terms before, but his hypothesis seemed logical. Since then, Chelsea had been to one funeral wake and avoided looking at the body. Until now, she'd never seen another dead person. Until now. The hijacker had ordered the passengers to take out their cell phones and record his tirade. My name is Bradley Strong, he repeated to the cameras. I reside at 324 Trenton Street in Detroit, Michigan. My children attend Brown Elementary School. If you've been paying attention to the news at all, you'll know what that means. Chelsea's heart was pounding all the way up in her throat, not just because she was on a plane with a murderous terrorist and at least one dead body already, but also because she was so familiar with the controversy at the school Bradley was talking about. For a sickening moment, she feared he must know, must know that she was a journalist covering the story. Maybe he'd blame her and people like her for not exposing the situation earlier. Plans for the building started over a year ago. Now, here it was nearly Christmas, and the poor kids had been attending classes on this toxic wasteland since the fall. Chelsea understood his frustration. If she had children of her own, she'd rather move to a different state than send them to a place like Brown. Unfortunately, the families served by that school generally lacked the funds to move even to a different neighborhood. The town hall meetings where they could have voiced their complaints were held during working hours when most of them were on the clock and a significant portion of them didn't feel comfortable communicating in English, which is how their children's school ended up being built on a former pharmaceutical sludge pile in the first place. Chelsea had never experienced anything like what the families at Brown Elementary had, at least not firsthand. Growing up in Wooster, she'd been smack dab in the center of middle class, Comfortable suburbs, involved parents, quiet cul-de-sac. 
Sometimes she felt guilty. What right did she have trying to speak up for the oppressed when her entire life had been so comfortable? Clark told her that instead of resenting her privileged existence, she should leverage her position as a relatively attractive, reasonably articulate white female college graduate in order to raise awareness for those who were more easily overlooked. His words even coincided with a Bible verse Bree liked to quote, "'From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded.'" and from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Chelsea sometimes wondered why matters of faith came so much simpler to her friend. Bree had grown up with an alcoholic father and an enabling mother. Her older brother had been in and out of jail on multiple drug charges, and her family had always struggled to make ends meet. Even now, Bree was living in a studio apartment in a neighborhood rough enough that Chelsea begged her to get a smart security system, or at least a second deadbolt for the door that she could fasten from the inside. As a minority, as a young adult from a not-so-idyllic family background, Bree had every reason to be anxious, depressed, and maladjusted. But she was the most put-together person Chelsea knew— which only made Chelsea feel even more guilty for the personal struggles she'd been wrestling with since her early teens. Bradley continued his tirade against the state of Michigan, the Detroit mayor, the nation who sat back and did nothing while helpless children were being poisoned day in and day out. The majority of his rant was directed at the superintendent of the Detroit school district. Charles Weston has failed our kids, he spat out. It was a name Chelsea was quite familiar with. In her preliminary research on the Brown scandal, Charles Weston stood out as the primary culprit, which was why she'd been working so hard to try to get a hold of him before she'd made this trip. The fact that the terrorist holding her plane hostage was protesting the very story Chelsea was flying out to Detroit to cover was unnerving. It was bad enough sitting here with an armed gunman who'd already killed at least one passenger. But the fact that she and Bradley were somehow both concerned about the same travesty impacting the kids of Detroit made her feel squeamish and alarmed. Airplane hijackers were supposed to be greedy, monstrous villains. Was it possible that Bradley was nothing more than a desperate father doing anything and everything in his power to make it so his kids didn't get lead and arsenic poisoning when they played foursquare outside after lunch? No, that didn't make sense. Chelsea cared about the students at Brown Elementary School, which was why she was on this plane. Never in her wildest dreams would she consider hijacking one. Maybe there was something deeper to it than this. Maybe Brown was just a smokescreen. Maybe Bradley would have turned toward murder and terrorism no matter what school his children went to, and his frustration with the mayor of Detroit and the school district superintendent was simply an easy excuse. It certainly was an easier explanation to accept. By the way, Bradley was saying, if Charles Weston is looking for his precious little girl, I want you to know I've been keeping Selina in good hands. 
He grabbed the wide-eyed teenager the air marshal had been trying to protect. Lifting her up by the collar of her T-shirt, he shoved her in front of a passenger's phone. "'Say hello to your daddy,' Bradley told her, his voice taunting and full of spite. Selina Weston was shaking so hard she could barely stand. Overcome with compassion and pity, Chelsea resisted the urge to jump out of her seat and race to the girl's side. Just stay calm, Chelsea told herself. Stay calm, stay quiet, and you just might get through this ordeal alive. Chapter 8 Chelsea had never considered herself that gifted in prayer. Her mom could sit for hours with her Bible and a cup of coffee and pour out her heart to God while highlighting passages of Scripture and jotting down notes in the margins. Chelsea, on the other hand, found her mind wandering when her dad said grace before the evening meal. Even now, Chelsea realized, she was no better at praying than when she wasn't being held hostage 30,000 feet above ground by an insane murderer intent on kidnapping, hijacking, and terrorism. Her mind wanted to pray, but she couldn't slow down the racing of her heart long enough to focus on anything. There was nothing in her soul, no pleas for protection, no comforting passages of scripture brought to mind at just the right time. There was only uncertainty and fear. Bradley was pacing up and down the aisle. Each and every time he came close to first class, Chelsea willed herself to grow even smaller. When his steps receded and he headed toward the back of the cabin, Chelsea experienced a surge of relief that left her head light and her body cold a surge of relief that also left her feeling incredibly guilty, because it just meant his attentions were focused on some other helpless, terrorized passenger. "'I'm going to give Charles Weston five minutes to call me,' Bradley declared. Five minutes for a little heart-to-heart -heart with the city's good old superintendent. We can talk about anything you like, about the elementary school you built on poison.' "'about the grown men on the construction crew who landed in the hospital. "'Or maybe you'd like to talk about something else. "'Your daughter, maybe? "'I don't want to hurt her, but I assure you I will.' "'Chelsea couldn't bring herself to look at the kidnapped teen "'who'd returned to her seat after being paraded in front of the cameras. "'From somewhere behind her, Chelsea heard muffled whimpering.' but she had no idea if it was from Selina Weston or any of the other hundreds of passengers on the flight. They were all here, all captive. They had all seen Bradley shoot his first victim. And yet Chelsea felt incredibly alone in the horror of it, as if nobody else in the world could imagine the terror she was experiencing at this exact moment in time. She tried to think of what Clark might tell her in a situation like this, but her coach's voice in her mind was silent. She tried to guess what her mother would do if she were stuck here on this flight. Pray. That was probably it. Mom and Dad always talked about heaven, and they were both certain about their future in the afterlife. Chelsea believed the exact same things they did— 
but that didn't mean she was anywhere near ready to die. Please, God. Chelsea couldn't think of anything else even remotely appropriate to say. Five minutes, Bradley repeated, making a show of checking on the time. Five minutes before another hostage dies. Please, God. It was the only prayer Chelsea could muster. She just hoped it would be enough. Thanks for listening to the Unabridged Christian Fiction Audiobook Podcast. This has been the Terror in the Sky series written by me, Alana Terry, and narrated by Becky Dowdy. If you want to listen to or read this entire series without interruptions, you can look for the Terror in the Sky series by Alana Terry wherever you shop for ebooks, paperbacks, or audiobooks.